0: Respect and dignity shouldn't be dependent on that you are a mirror of me, but that I actually see you as you are with all of your difference, Um, and we come together um, to to celebrate our humanity and, and, and our diverse humanity.
1: Welcome to the AIS New South Wales Creating Cohesive Communities podcast series, developed by the Association of Independent Schools, New South Wales. My name is Julia Jember. And my name is Kate Xavier. Today, we are joined by Dean and founder of Together for Humanity, Rabbi Zalman Castell. Rabbi Castell was raised in the Orthodox Hasidic tradition in Brooklyn, New York. As a young adult in Australia, Rabbi Castell's encounters with Christians and Muslims transformed him and commenced his life journey passion for working across communities to develop better understanding between the major faiths. He founded Together for Humanity in 2002 and in 2020 he was made a member of the Order of Australia in recognition of his work on interfaith and intercultural understanding. Join us as we explore being comfortable with difference and finding common ground through interfaith and intercultural understanding, education and encounters. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands and airways in which we are meeting and broadcasting today. As we share our learning, we also pay respect to elders both past and present as it is their knowledge and experiences that holds the key to the success of our future generations. Welcome. It's so great to see you today.
0: Good to see you, Julia and Kate um, from AIS. It's great to be here today.
2: Salman, you're the founder and education dean of Together for Humanity. What exactly inspired you to start your own interfaith and intercultural education foundation in Australia?
0: Yeah, um, it's been a, 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 a long journey with lots of stops along the way. Um, so um, the first Point in, in this journey was a conversation with the late Joe Sheridan, um, a Catholic man, and we were talking just as people from uh, different uh, faith communities about meaning and, and purpose. Um, and as odd as that sounds, um, I haven't had that experience of, of that kind of deep conversation about what really matters in life outside my own faith community. So to have those kind of conversations within um, a Hasidic community uh, we'd call them a Fabrengan that people would sit down with a plate of herring and possibly some vodka and um, sing songs and talk about life and meaning and here I was with this Catholic man and um, there was just something that I felt really deep in my soul there was this deep connection that you know Joe said it was about compassion but it was it was about spirit and it was about human connection um, so that started the journey and um, And then I guess over time, um, this began, the work began in 2002, um, in the shadow of uh, September 11 um, in the United States. There was um, anti-Muslim prejudice at the time. Um, And uh, we recognized that there was a need for people to have deeper conversations, not just that diversity is good because you can have different kinds of food, but that we can really understand each other and connect uh, at least initially on a values level, that we have shared values.
1: Amazing. So and from, from then, Together for Humanity sprouted. So and what was the, the early iteration of Together for Humanity?
0: Yeah, Together for Humanity began with this um, uh, idea about shared values and commonality and, um, you know, in learning about difference, uh, it's important not to exaggerate difference. Um, uh, in some research, uh, um, Peterson has done a uh, kind of summary of the various of research, a literature review, and, and um, she has this phrase of, you know, different but nice. Um, and, and sometimes people are focused so much on the difference that um, you lose sight of the fact that apart from all the difference, there's so much that is really really significant uh it's significantly common yeah. um and uh that was the beginning of our work was was this um we called it goodness and kindness um mm-hmm. it started outside i was working at uh, a synagogue at the time called chabad house of the north shore in st ives um and it started as a as a, a, a activity of helping young people realize that goodness and kindness you know, could be um uh experienced and expressed by anyone, whether they are, have a faith or don't have a faith. And if they did have a faith, whatever faith was, but, um, we didn't stop there because, uh, it became clear to me that goodness and kindness was not, um, the real essence of what we were trying to do. That was one detail mm-hmm. in terms of embracing difference. And so we moved on from that. Um, we rebranded, we called it Together for Humanity, um, uh, and while we still can talk about how we have things in common and help young people connect to that commonality, either in inter-school kind of cultural exchanges, we have children from different backgrounds come and talk to each other and learn about each other, or it could be um, with adults from different cultures coming into a school and giving children that sense of connection. But we also want young people to embrace different um, um, Respect and dignity shouldn't be dependent on that you are a mirror of me, but that I actually see you as you are with all of your difference um, and we come together um, to to celebrate our humanity and, and, and our diverse humanity, I guess.
1: Yeah, the diverse and the common humanity. Is yeah, it, that, yeah road, both. Yeah. But I guess yeah. another
0: part of the journey, which I think is important, is that, um, I, and I remember distinctly the moment that um, we turned again um, it was in Castlereagh Street, um, sitting around a round table. And uh, Mohammed Dukali was there. He's a Liberian man, does a lot of cross-cultural education. Um, um, he's, uh, he's lived through civil war. You know, he's uh, seen a lot. Um, and he's a leader in his community. Um, did a lot of work with starts. Um, Heather Lawton, uh, an Aboriginal leader from um, Alice Springs. Uh, myself. Um, and uh, Donna Jacob Seif, a Jewish storyteller. And the four of us were sitting around the table and trying to find the one word that would be the essence of the work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And both Muhammad and Heather said it was belonging. Yeah. And I think sometimes uh, for those of us who are uh, part of the majority uh, sort of population, however you want to phrase that, however you want to define that, can sometimes not... See what it's like, what the impact of prejudice is like on people that are uh, subjected to it. That if you, as some boys uh, have told us um, in in uh, Punch Bowl, um, what it feels like to see themselves described in the media in particular ways. Um, if you haven't had that experience, um, you you don't understand the impact. Um, and for Mohammed and Heather, um, the point was about belonging, about um, having a sense that you can participate, that you're not uh, um, on the margins. Uh, so for, for, for our work, that was a turning point, a recognition that it wasn't just about teaching people to embrace the other, but it's also about supporting young people to think about where their place is and to develop resilience, to develop um, uh, accurate understanding of, mm. of the world, um, mm. that there is prejudice and there are people that are... Uh, Um, Have the wrong ideas about you, but you also have choices about how you navigate that world, and you have opportunities. Um, Mm. So it's not one or the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. It almost sounds like it's the antidote to the othering belonging.
0: Yeah, I think belonging is is where is is uh, when othering stops cutting deep. It stops. That it 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 uh, it means that whatever othering is going on is not. Um, causing significant harm to the yeah. person who can feel that they belong.
1: Thank you. you. You have mentioned a few programs, so I just want to circle back because you mentioned young people. So in that context, we're talking about obviously running programs within school spaces. So would you be able to elaborate over the years what what are some of the programs that have developed?
0: Sure. And I should also say that, that um, we work with teachers as well as students. Um, um, so I guess I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, one is um, uh, a program related to the history syllabus for migration stories. Um, and um, we'll have uh, people from different backgrounds come into a school. Uh, one of the funny things that we've been doing, and we've done this across various ages, is, uh, is asking children to guess which of us is Australian. So if the three of us walked into a school, um, they probably would guess that only Kate is Australian, um, unless you said your name was Katharina, in which case you wouldn't be Australian either. Um, mm-hmm. Children in Australia, and this, week, this goes from Bullsbrook in Western Australia right up to the north, uh, northeast tip, um, have uh, conflated the idea of being Australian with being white and Anglo. Um, this idea that you can have Australian as a nationality, regardless of your faith or culture or ethnicity or skin colour, is something that children just haven't, many, many children and teenagers have not got the message. So typically a lot of Together Humanities programs will begin with just a a, a a mild invitation to think about prejudice. And so we'll ask some, you know, a group of us or... There might be a Muslim person in a hijab or an Aboriginal person, but it's typically sort of team of three or four people standing in front of a group of students, which of us is Australian, and um, inviting children to guess um, and if we are or are not Australian and then standing behind uh, a barrier or standing inside of a box and say, you've put us in a box, you've, you've assumed that we're not Australian. And to invite the children to think about... Um, uh, The impact of those kind of assumptions. Um, We were in in Bullsbrook, actually, and there was a child there who had been suspended from school for uh, some kind of racist incident, and he'd just come back. And the teacher overheard him saying, as we were having this conversation about the different meanings of the word Australian, and um, he was listening to his peers suggest that to be Australian, um, you needed to have a a beer with your, your mates in the pub. And he said, well, by that definition, we're not Australian because we're underage. <laughs> so, so that's one kind of experience that, that we have done with children. And then in, in, in terms of the migration stories uh, program, we'll have the, the presenters tell their stories about, um, about why they've migrated. Um, we'll also often talk about values. it will have a ex- values clarification exercise, how important are different values to you, like freedom. How important is it for you to be free, to do things, live your life in the way you think you should? And then circle back to, um, say, an Afghan refugee who's escaped the Taliban um, and, and talking about what are reasons for people moving across the world and how, um, in this particular case with this Afghan uh, presenter or facilitator, um, the story she told about how um, her freedom was curtailed uh, under the Taliban and how much she values being free in Australia to live her life in accordance with her own beliefs. Mm-hmm. So the stories, I, I mean, there's so many beautiful stories. Um, one of the programs that we have been running is uh, a kind of intrapersonal and interpersonal learning. Okay. So sort of having a longer form um, experience with students to spend uh, maybe a day or, or a, a one, one lesson a week for a series of weeks to think more deeply about things um, we're working with an independent school next week where we're going to look at um, the nature of power good power and bad power um, in that particular school which is a very sensitive faith based school we're actually going to barely talk about faith except for the faith of that particular school because for them um, their particular school ethos is quite um, strict in terms of um, they're uncomfortable talking about other faiths, and that's fine. That's you know we can work with all kind of different schools. So this one we're going to be looking mainly at culture prejudice, um, but we're beginning with a conversation about power, good power and bad power, um, influence, and how how power works. Then taking from that to going into um, the you know how power interplays with prejudice, and then looking at First Nations experiences, and then looking at men and women this is an all boys school and how the males and females um, interact in ways that are um, uh, appropriate our theme is honor and power um, so the, quite um, uh, uh, bespoke in some ways but also kind of taking children on a learning journey that is quite rich um, that's one kind of program I wanted to mention and another one is bringing students from different schools backgrounds together to to learn about each other to, to um, have fun together um, play together um, and uh, discover uh, commonalities and differences.
1: You mentioned that mild invitation. Mm. And I think that's um, something I, I think is really important to unpack because the sense that I get is that it's effectively engaging with young people to open up a conversation instead of being stuck in a particular space and it just seems like the the uh, one of the the multiple examples you gave, but one that really stands out, is the telling of stories, and people being able to speak their truth. How important is storytelling in terms of this process?
0: Uh, storytelling is, I believe, extremely important. Um, uh- one of the things, one, one of the elements that makes the biggest difference in terms of countering prejudice is um, uh, empathy. Um, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, really feeling the connection with that person uh, makes a big difference. And one of the greatest ways to, to uh, um, evoke empathy is through storytelling. You also kind of alluded to the mild invitation. And I want to say mm-hmm. something about that I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think children often are told that racism is bad and um uh they know that they're not supposed to be racist but they don't necessarily have an opportunity to explore those kind of mild prejudices so they know that you know racism is not socially acceptable which is a valuable learning um but when they do have prejudices if they can't um um Kind of unpack them, uh, challenge them in, in in a in a in a way that is not you know heavily uh, judgmental or shame inducing. Um, then it just it just is driven underground. You know that, that those prejudices are never explored, never never examined and challenged and uh, discarded. Mm. Whereas when you have a, a playful approach, you know, guess which of us is Australian, and we're standing behind a box or whatever it is. Um, it's it's a lot easier to to explore yeah. um, uh, prejudice and ways of of thinking about Australian identity or ways of thinking about others.
1: Yeah, it just seems like it's it's sort of speaking to providing a a culturally safe space to start to explore some pretty at times confronting and difficult topics and and situations. So, you know, that's a great example that, you know, um, activity that's introduced to make it accessible for for young people or for even adults for that matter. Do you want to speak a bit more about experiential learning and, and how helpful that is as part of the journey?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one of the activities um, that we, we did in a, in a regional uh, town, um, um, actually an activity we got from Kate. Um, um, that uh, um, the mask activity. But we did it in a particular way in this school. So this was a a, a middle-class school, mostly um, Anglo students, what we could see. Um, and we gave them a, a, a piece of paper, a piece of a cardboard, and on it was a, a mask with a, a line drawn through the middle of it. And um, we asked them to draw on one side of the mask how they... Um, saw themselves, their inner identity, and uh, on the other side, how do they present themselves to their peers? Um, We also gave them some inspiration, you know, you might be and the inner identity might be cloudy um, and the external might be sunshine and things like that. So, you know, just giving them some visual um, uh, scaffolding to think about the differences between our inner identity and the one we present to our peers. And then we asked them outside of those two masks, Uh, What are representations that people have of you as a a, a young male student or female student or um, your faith or ethnicity or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, studious or sports, whatever it is. What are some representations people might have of you, Um, people who don't necessarily know you well, but these perceptions that they have of you and some of the students um, reflected that. There was a significant degree of alignment between all three identities, that the way they presented themselves to their peers was not very different from the way they thought of themselves. And the way other people perceived them was not so different from the way they perceived themselves. And so that was one phase of the exercise. We then asked them to think about another town just a few kilometers away where there was a high percentage of low socioeconomic um, families, a high percentage of Aboriginal young people. um, And um, we asked them, okay, now try and put yourself in their shoes and think they're doing the same exercise you've just done. And what came out is that they recognised that the the representations that these young people, their same age, just five kilometres down the road, would be grappling with would be far more harsh and uh, um, uh, bleak, you know, things like delinquent and, and, and uh, various other very negative descriptors. And that that would therefore impact the way that they would feel comfortable to show up and present themselves because they're under attack. And the way that they would see themselves as well. So all, of, all both of their, their identities that, you know, to some extent is their choice or their inner way of thinking and presenting themselves would be significantly curtailed by um, other people's prejudices. Mm. So that was a very rich exercise to think about, uh, to you know, to empathize and to imagine, to understand how um, there, there, there's so much of an interplay between um, uh, external uh, representation and the way that you're able to um, feel inside of yourself, and the way that you're able to present yourself.
1: Yeah, fascinating. That's really speaking to that. Those intersections that occur, and it starts to also speak to structural implications. The word that <laughs> always comes up, and the impact that has, and how that's internalized. Mm. What sort of um, uh, narratives do young people internalize and carry with them because of of those situations and the, and those structural implications, as well as more sort of micro interactions as well. Mm.
2: I'm hearing through these stories that there's a real link there to the ACARA intercultural continuum and starting on the fact that in order to develop these intercultural skills, we start with ourselves and an understanding of everybody has a culture and that um, everybody uh, has to understand themselves before they can start to understand others. So that's a really valuable link there to um, helping young people develop some of these intercultural capabilities.
0: Absolutely, and, and you know one of the things that we've done with teachers is ask them to to um, uh, think about sort of words like uh, time or, or or sort of sentence stems like you know um, uh, conflict should be or uh, you know authority should be dealt with in a particular way um, and. To, to recognize that that we all have a culture and that, um, it, you know, because some people think of culture as something for non-English speaking background people. Uh, okay, you, you come from somewhere else and therefore you have a culture, but if someone's from an Anglo background, oh, I haven't got a culture because my culture is invisible. But in fact, um, culture is the way we think about it or the way we sort of encourage young people to think about it. It's culture is just the way things are done around here. Um, And so each of us has various norms. Um, And of course, one of the things we love doing with that is the the evening meal. And it's such a rich conversation. What does an evening meal look like in your family? Uh, I think Donna Jacob Seif did a lot of work with that, Um, you know, and uh, this was some young children in Lismore uh, at at an independent school. And, um, they talked about that in, in their one child was saying, well, and in my family, um, we have a rule that you can't watch TV um, when, when you're having dinner. But when my mom's favorite TV show is on, then that rule doesn't <laughs> apply. And that's such a rich sort of cultural kind of, you know, there's a whole bunch of layers about what the culture, the family culture that child is living with.
2: Yeah. I, I love that when we work with teachers we often use that analogy of when you start a new school and you walk into the classroom and you know you, you teach a lesson then it's imagine it's the last period of the day what do you do with the chairs and I remember one time um asking the the, the students to put their chairs up on the desk and boy did I quickly learn the culture there and uh um, you know, sometimes culture can be seen, and other times it's unseen. So it's mm. really great to to use those analogies that young people are familiar with, such as the evening meal, to help them understand some of these complex ideas, such as culture, which sometimes they think doesn't apply to them. Yes. Yeah. Well, we want to ask you now: um, What advice would you give school leaders and teachers who are trying to improve intercultural understanding capabilities of their students and staff?
0: Yeah, um, I guess one of the one of the insights that um, we, we've come to recently is um, that uh, uh, often in a school you have these different teachers at different points of their uh, journey or different ways of relating to difference, and you have some teachers who just don't um, are not engaged with it; they don't um, see it as important um and other teachers um who do and um they'll have different perceptions of what's going on in the school one of the things that uh, that's been quite powerful in some of the schools we've worked with as part of our professional development but anyone can do this is to create a survey um to ask teachers to um share what they've noticed about their school so um do you notice uh, um, uh, prejudice behavior, racist behavior in the school? And if you do, how often is it—once a week, or is it once a month, or is it never, rarely? You know, these kinds of options. And, and, and just—and then also, if you do see these, um, what's happening? What kind of um, what kind of prejudice are you seeing? Is it homophobia? Is it? Uh, you know, uh, religious-based discrimination, you know, racial, um, you know, so, so kind of getting a bit of a sense of the, the specific forms that it takes. But also really interesting is, is it student towards another student? Is it a student towards objects? Sometimes children can, you know, kick a rubbish bin and say some kind of racist comment um, while they're kicking the rubbish bin. Um, is it students towards staff? And is it staff towards other staff? And what the schools that have done this kind of exercise with our support, but again, I think people can do it themselves, have found is that the perceptions of what's going on in the school varies greatly between teachers, but that it's a really, it's a great teachable moment for teachers to notice that their peers have a very different experience to theirs. And so the teacher who might think, okay, well, there's nothing, nothing to see here, we're fine, we don't have... A problem. Well, maybe you don't see a problem, but maybe twenty, thirty, forty percent of your of your colleagues do, and therefore that is part of the picture. It's not a question of right or wrong. I mean, it could be as well. But apart from the question of right and wrong, it's also a question of the the complex reality of your school that there are experiences that teachers are seeing where there is pain and there is harm. There is there is. um, you know, a discomfort that is, that is disruptive to the learning environment. Um, the other part of that survey is also a question about how um, equipped do you feel to fulfill your obligations whether it's to respond to uh, a racist comment or it's about encouraging the respect for diversity, the Australian curriculum, general capabilities, however the school defines that um, uh, obligation of teachers that responsibility for teachers um, how equipped do you feel to meet those obligations or responsibilities? And that also brings up often a very high percentage of teachers say, we don't really know what you want from us. You know, this was a, – a teachers were saying that – we were, did some work in a regional center. And teachers were saying, look, I'm trying my best, but I really don't know what what's expected of me and terms of, I don't know how to – fulfill these responsibilities. I know how to teach, you know, numeracy and literacy and whatever else, but these other things I just don't know. And I think once that can be uncovered where you can see maybe 70% of your staff have some questions or have some awareness of a gap in their knowledge, then you can go to the next stage, okay, well, what are some specific questions you have? And then you can start to see a whole school transformation. The other uh, piece of advice is from some research that we did um, with uh, a dozen schools in Victoria um, led by Deakin University and that was uh, about the absolute imperative of it being an integrated approach one school that had a standalone approach a unit in year nine sort of global citizenship it had no they could find zero evidence that that really achieved anything in terms of countering prejudice in terms of embracing difference so we all know that school culture is important and um, You know, uh, I've forgotten the expression, but something like culture eats policy for breakfast or whatever it is, you know. Um, We know that culture creates uh, uh, consciousness. It it, it influences behavior. Um, If we want to have an inclusive school, we need to look holistically at what happens in that school, which voices are heard. We were talking earlier about a a teacher, uh, uh, Ula Issa. She wrote uh, a paper called, My Grandmother Didn't Grow Up in Gulligolch. And talking about... Her work uh, with uh, students in a, uh, a private, an independent school, an independent Islamic school in in Sydney, um, with young children in in a primary school, and and that a lot of the, the literature that they had in their English reading just didn't ref, didn't um, align with the children's own experience. Um, but there is a lot of literature out there. There's so many stories. There's so much, and we could you know we could we could ensure that our um, practices and our culture, what happens in the school aligns with uh, our ideals and principles.
2: Absolutely. I think I was was watching a Matilda's game the other day and one of the um, players said, uh, or an ex-player I think, he said, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that idea of representation and whether that's in books, in the coloured pencils or the paints, whether that's in the canteen food or, you know, if in an early childhood setting are you seeing chopsticks or are you seeing, um, you know, spaces to pray or whatever else. So having that being seen and um, having those funds of knowledge valued is really important for that sense of belonging. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much for opening up such a powerful conversation and with your incredible body of work and expertise and connections with all that you do, it's just great to know that this journey is, is still going on and that um, we have together for humanity and, and all your amazing team um, to continue the good work. If there's anything else that we might have missed out on in terms of this very important conversation that you might want to share with the listeners. Yeah. Come
0: and visit us, togetherforhumanity.org.au. Stay you in do. touch. We'd love to support your school. And we will have another round of partnerships for schools where we, we are able to um, um, we have some federal funding to give to schools that are interested in um, addressing um, intercultural or interfaith challenges, inclusion um, um, cohesion if this is something that's important to you do stay in touch we do have an, some other grant rounds going and we tend to work with 100 schools in partnership providing advice support um, with working with students and teachers but also for the school to have their own initiative and um, there's also an opportunity for funding with that
1: great excellent thank you <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode For further information on the AIS New South Wales Community Cohesion podcast series and project, or any of our guests, please see our show notes.